Welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. And if you're watching the replay or on YouTube, thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement. Now, today on the podcast, we welcome Chef Cassandra Katoya. Chef Cassandra is a professional chef. She's a health coach with 20 years of cooking experience. She graduated from the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York in 2003 and spent the next 10 years cooking in various restaurants in the Northeast and the Hudson Valley. After climbing the ranks and becoming an executive chef, she realized that her passion was to work with clients one-on-one and decided to become a private chef for a family in Westchester County, New York. And that family was mine. So during the six and a half years in that home, she worked very closely with local farms and refined her cooking style to include gluten-free, dairy-free, and other health-conscious options. Recently, she started her own business called Empowered Foodie, where she delivers custom weekly meals to busy families, as well as dinner parties and special occasions when requested. Chef Cassandra also coaches kids and adults to become chefs of their own kitchens. She lives in Cortland Manor, New York, with her husband, Jim, their dog, Roy, and their two cats, Minna and Merlin. And during the podcast, we discuss food and emotions, chefs, cooking, and eating for herself. The Menopause Movement Recipes for Living Cookbook and our Recipes Membership, which Cassandra writes all the recipes for. Shifting gears from employment to starting her own business. Health coaching. How food connects families and is emotionally rewarding and memorable. Cassandra's relationship with anxiety. Choosing not to drink and the choices that she's made. Support for not drinking as a chef and where to find it and how her choice to not drink has been an experiment rather than a punishment, cultural beliefs around drinking. And at the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for all of the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast. This helps more women to find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. Now let's get to Chef Cassandra. Cassandra, welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here. So glad to have you here. So why don't you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do now, what you used to do, you know, uh, what you've been doing. Just give us a little history. So we have Chef Cassandra Katoya here. And, you know, as I said in the intro, she's been a chef for a long time. So let's just hear a little bit from you. Okay. Hi, everybody. So yeah, I'm I am a, it's like 21 years now, I think this year, actually, I've been cooking professionally. I'm a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. So Is I that where Anthony Bourdain went? Yes, yes. <laughs> Anthony Bourdain and the chef from Millennia as well. Like there's so many. Oh, Grant? Yes, Grant Atkins. So yeah, so I, I went to the Culinary Institute of America. I actually grew up in the Hudson Valley. I was born in Vermont. My, fam- my family moved to like the Rhinebeck area when I was like four. And so I grew up around the culinary like my whole life and loved to cook. And so when I, when I was old enough, I decided to go to school 
And then after school, I worked in a lot of restaurants. I became an executive chef of a restaurant. I worked in a bakery cafe. I worked up and down some different restaurants in the Northeast. And then again, came back to the Hudson Valley. And after getting it, you know, becoming an executive chef, which was like the pen, I reached that point and thought, hmm, this isn't exactly what I want to do. I want to have more one on one interaction with the people I'm cooking for. And so I was fortunate enough to become an, a private chef for, for you, Dr. Gordon. <laughs> oh, for me. Yeah. Yes. No. How long did you work for us? Like six years? Six and, a six and a half. Oh, but who's yeah. counting? But who's counting? <laughs> so that was awesome because that actually, that opportunity came for me in the midst of a divorce. So it afforded mm -hmm. me the ability to, to kind of change gears in a whole bunch of ways. And sure. I was lucky enough to travel a little bit and cook, change how I cooked to incorporate a lot more health conscious options which was a lot more important in restaurant that you're thinking about like what tastes good and you know how to make the flavors stand out with when I began working for you it was nice because I got to really work with cooking healthier options that pe that were sustainable for people right that's um, good yeah so. that that does help to to it was it was a bit of a transition to go from you know cooking restaurant style to cooking health style so let me just tell the story a little bit. So in 2013, I, I was looking for some healthier options to, to get my diet under control. And my, my belief at the time was that if, if I hired somebody to cook for us, that I would be able to have a much better control over my diet. And that was not necessarily, I mean, it was good to not have to cook or not have to shop and, and all of those things. But the biggest thing for me in terms of understanding how to get my body under control was, was really dealing with a lot of my own beliefs about food more than, more than, you know, having somebody prepare the meals for me or anything like that. It was really my beliefs about food that I had to just kind of push through and, and, you know, and my beliefs about exercise on top of that, you know, there, there was, I mean, when you started working for us, I don't think I was exercising much at all. No, you, you, you kind of started working with, with the trainer and then you tried a couple of different, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting because we talk about this all the time, but like emotions and food are so, so intimately linked. Right. And so like kind of figuring out the different layers of that and what feels good to you. And, and, you know, you tried, you tried several different things until you found something that worked for you too, that felt good for you, that you liked, you know, how you like to eat and and all of that. So, well, and then, and then we kind of got into, you know, a little bit of a partnership because, you know, you created all these recipes that were really very menopause friendly. So we threw them into a cookbook and into a recipes membership, right? Yes. And that's, that's been because, you know, you kind of watched me, you know, as, what was it about, about 20, yeah, it was, I think I started going through menopause probably around 2012. So just before you started, but then it really hit me right after you started. And I was complaining a lot. And we, yeah. we had to, we had to, we had to really do a lot of, you know, tweaking to, you know, the diet to get things. Get things well, going. To, to make it flavorful and fun as well as calorie conscious or health conscious, or, you know, it was a challenge, mm -hmm. but a really good challenge for me too, because even for me, I mean, I can only eat so much fancy food before I get over it, you know, because I want something simple, which through the pandemic, I, I said this to you before, it, it's been really funny because so for anyone who knows a chef, and if you don't know a chef, this is going to be funny for you, but we don't cook for ourselves. As a general rule, most of us do not cook for ourselves. We cook for everyone else. And we have one of the few professions that 
isn't actual life skills. So we cook for other people, but we don't, we don't change, you know, gears when we go home. Like we still have to eat. We still have to take care of ourselves. So for most chefs and most that I, I know, cooking for ourselves is like bottom of the list. Cause when I'm home, I don't want to cook because I don't want to have anything else but my own food and just do something different. Right. But in the pandemic and since I shifted gears, it was like, I had to really figure out what I like to eat, what feels good for my body instead of just eating you know, up to this point, I would eat whatever was in the restaurant, I would make something from what was there, or, you know, when I looked for you, what was available there. And so figuring out, figuring out what you like to eat and what works for you and what works for your body is, is certainly an adventure. I've been yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and it's, it's, you know, I think that, you know, we know in menopause that, that things don't work the same for all women. Now you're not, you're not, you know, you're still in your thirties. You're not menopausal yet. But what we've, what we've discovered is that, is that, you know, if you eat the same way, and even if you exercise the same way, you're probably still going to get that mental belly. And so we, we teamed up and created a cookbook. It's called the menopause movement recipes for living cookbook. And you can get it on my, off of my website or you probably in Amazon. But then we decided to kind of put, take some of those recipes and put them together into a membership so that, that women can, you know, kind of support themselves. And we, well, we do it in a way so it's not so overwhelming. So it's five full meals per month. And then by the end of the year, you've got 60. And you can print them out. And, you know, so there, there's going to be more information on that in the show notes. So let's just shift gears here a second and talk about What's important to you right now? I mean, you know, you went through the pandemic. Before the pandemic, you made some decisions about how you wanted to live your life and and what prompted that? Let's let's go to that. I mean, I I've been so I've been so fortunate to to have, a, you know, really great opportunities and working working for you, you know, you you became it was like fam, you know, family for me. But also looking up to you as as a strong strong woman role model, you know, it, to me, it was, I watched you grow businesses and I watched you flourish. And I just thought, gosh, you know, like, I don't know. I always knew I wanted to have my own business. I didn't really know if I'd have the courage to do it. And I think after, after watching you and like, we're, you know, we talked about different mindset shifts and things like that. And I grew as a person, I just reached a point where I was like, huh, you know, I just feel like, and I didn't, obviously the pandemic and the timing of that was not something I planned. I don't think any of us could have planned mm -hmm. that. But it was for me, it just got to all of a sudden I got to a place where I was like, you know, if I'm 30, you know, at that time, what, 36 years old, you know, if I'm going to do this, I should do it. And I should really try and, and step out and see what I, what I, you know, take all this knowledge that I have and do something with it. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of came up to a place where I couldn't, couldn't push it down. I couldn't, you know, change it up. I, I had to try. And so I, so I decided to leave and, and start my own business and try in the middle of the pandemic to figure out kind of, and I've been trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been really challenging, obviously up and down days, but the, that, that excitement around freedom and, and possible all these different things that had kind of been swirling around in my mind of things I wanted mm -hmm. seemed like, it seemed like that was like my next step. All right. So, so um, so, you, so you took a, you, you know, you, you changed gears, you switched, you switched gears and you started working for people working as, you know, as a contractor or for creating, creating meals, but you also, you also are a health coach. How does that work? So, so one of the things that was so awesome about working for you was I also, I, I was able to get a nutrition certification from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And that's, that gave me a really large, broad background in a bunch of different health regimes and how to be a health coach. And I kind of thought that was going to be something I would do for a while. 
and what has happened most recently kind of combined different things to now be doing like I almost call it like young young chef coaching or foodie coaching where I coach adults and kids on you know teaching them how to become more comfortable in their kitchens and how to create meals which is really really cool um, I think I think we don't teach you know we we it's we don't teach cooking anymore it's just not a life skill that people get and so somebody like you who you know is patient with people as they make mistakes it reminds yeah. me a lot. We've, we've talked about this before, but in my surgical career, I got to a point where I could work with just about anybody and not be afraid of what they do because I knew I could fix it. Right. And yes. so it's kind of like the same thing. We were talking about this the other day where, you know, you're really good with kids and a lot of parents when they, when they want to bake with their kids, it's, it's really scary because you have to, baking is such a process you have to follow everything exactly. And if the kid puts in a cup of baking soda, you know, <laughs> instead of a tablespoon, right? Most people wouldn't know what to do with that. Yeah. Whereas, well, whereas you can like, you know, really shift gears quickly. Yeah. And it's interesting because I don't, I don't have any kids of myself and I, you know, me, I've always been kind of like, I don't know if I really like, you know, I don't know if I like kids yeah. and, and a, you know, a client said to me, well, would you be willing to work with my kids? They're, you know, they're kind of difficult, but I really thought some one-on-one classes would be good for them because everybody is so mm -hmm. bored, you know, that these sure. kids have been home since, you know, March. Right. So like all of us, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's funny, right? Cause like I, growing up, I would be home in the summers all the time and I wouldn't think any of it. We didn't have all of the technology we have now. And I would, my parents mm -hmm. were busy working, so I didn't get to do stuff, but I certainly had never been home for this length of time. Cause my friend was like, yeah, but think about how long they've really been home. They've been home. Anyway. So she said, would you, would you really try? And I kind of was like, yeah, I'm trying, I'll try anything. You know, I'm open to anything. And I really, I really love it. Like I really enjoy the kids have grown so much in their ability to cut and focus. And they know, I had, I have, there's three children in the household and I've been working with two, but the third one came in who wanted to kind of hang out in the kitchen one day. And so I said to the one I've been working with, like, okay, well, Lucas, like explain to, to Ethan what we've been doing and explain why we're going to cut this way. And I watched him like rattle off all this stuff that I had told him over the last few weeks. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Like, it's yeah, really yeah. fun. But the thing is, is that, you know, we have this thing in surgery and I don't know what, what it's like. I mean, I, I think actually surgery and cooking are not that far apart in terms of the way that you know, we have surgery has a really intense training period where there's a lot of shame and, and, you know, almost like a boot camp kind of atmosphere. And, you know, cooking is the same thing. Kitchen Confidential brought that out. Yes. But we have this saying called see one, do one, teach one. Right. Where, you know, you watch one getting done, you do one and then you teach one and then that cements the, the process so you understand. And it's almost like you're intuitively doing that with these kids. You know? Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I, I think it was it was very cool with me just saying because I was like, huh, let's see, because I wanted to see what this one had retained. Like, how much did he really remember? Like, let's see. And then I'm always blown away because I'm like, wow, they retain so much more than I do. Like when I listen to stuff. Well, um, you think that, but then you know, we really do retain a lot more than you think. The brain is pretty powerful. The brain is pretty powerful. You know, so we want to we want to give our brains a lot of credit. You know. True. True. But it was, it was, it's very neat. It's very neat. And, and because it's, it's something they get to eat after, like it's so part for me about the, working with the kids that I didn't expect to enjoy. Mm -hmm. It's because I'm in, you know, I'm, you know, in the house for a short period of time, the kids get really excited. And then I watch their parents get excited about what the kids are making. And so like it unites the family, even just for a short period, especially in the midst of 
so much chaos and so much upset, like it brings in, like everybody forgets about it for a minute, you know, and just so, gets to enjoy it. So I love that. I love the ripple effect that you're talking about. You know, there, there is a big ripple effect of cooking as a group, you know, and, and I talk in, in, you know, so, so, you know, as everybody knows, I have this program called the Minnow System and we help women kind of rethink their menopause and you're, you're a part of that. You, you kind of teach a couple things in there, but yes. One of the things we talk about in there, you know, we see as women rethink their menopause, there's a big ripple effect and their, their relationship with themselves is better. Their relationship with their families is better. Right. And I talk a bit about how certain types of food remind me of my parents. So whenever, whenever I eat potato chips, I think about my dad, you know? Yeah. And so it's like a, this, so I always have to, when I eat potato chips, when I choose to eat potato chips and it's, it's not very often, but when I do eat them, I eat a lot. <laughs> I eat a lot. But when I, when I do choose to eat them, I always have to kind of step back and be the observer and say, okay, well, what is this? Is it that I'm missing my dad who passed away in 2017? Or is it that I'm really enjoying the crunch? And so, you know, I, I always want to be kind of cognizant of that. And then I have this really strong memory of my mother making brownies. And so, and, and it's like the, the, the visual is my mom and one of those square pans, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, these brownies and eating the corner. And so brownies, you know, there, there's just this, this visceral memory with food, with, with my parents, you know, potatoes for my dad. And it's just about anything potato, by the way. My dad, you know, like, like I have a really strong memory of my dad cutting, slicing potatoes, you know, putting salt on them, eating them raw, just you know, so wow. potatoes and my dad and brownies and my mom. And it, it's just, it's funny because when you can gather people together, and, and so there is a point to this story. <laughs> you, when you no, gather I people together, there is, there is a huge, huge, huge ripple effect of improved, you know, when, when around food, you know, maybe improved relationships or, you know, a, fa a family cohesiveness or even just a memory that the kids and the parents get to have together where everything else kind of falls away. And that, that I think is so powerful, you know, especially for someone, you know, especially now in this time where we can't even spend time together that much, you know, unless you're living in the same house. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, the, the connection of food, like kind of uniting families, like, you know, back, you know, it wasn't that long ago that families would all sit together for dinner and eat and all of that has gone, you know, completely, for the most part, out the window. I mean, a lot of people, especially some of these homes, they were sent, you know, they've told me before the pandemic, I mean, you're talking about they're up at 5am or 6am, the kids go to school, then they go to three different activities, and they don't get home till nine, right? Mm. So like, it's a very intense and much different world even than I grew up in. At, and so where, do, where is there time to sit down? Do you eat in the car? Do you eat on the way to a sporting event? Or, you know, like what, how are, how are people connecting? other than just on the weekends. And then the weekends are also busy. So it's, I love that asset, emotional aspect of food. I'm, I'm Italian and my grandmother was, um, my first primary food memory is making meatballs with my grandmother. And, you know, she was mm. Italian and she put a lot of parsley in and she put, you know, she like showed me, it was like garlic, parsley and cheese. Like that was like what made every Italian dish good. That all the like, cheese. All the cheese. So yeah, you know, food connects to memory, like almost like music, you know, how music takes you back to like a moment. I feel sure. like same thing with food, like food can take you back to like a Smells, moment you remember. Yeah. 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 Or, or eat, yeah, just like, you know, brownies with my mom every single time. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the other, the opposite side of it is, you know, how we were rewarded as children, 
you know, with ice cream or candy and then how we, how we decide to, to deal with that, you know, as we become adults. Well, how you're nurtured, right? You're born and breast milk is the first, first. So there's a lot of intricate connection around it and the emotional Mm -hmm. aspect of food and why we eat and why we do certain behaviors around food. Like it all, it all connects, but I like being able to kind of, you know, I really am enjoying this other part with the kids and I'm enjoy, I enjoy just in general, like being able to come in and, and help that one aspect, you know, for the family, mm-hmm. if they're really busy or they just don't have time, whatever. Yeah. I think it's no, a very cool thing. That's really neat. So on your, your, you know, outline here, you talk about that you're one year, almost one year alcohol free. So how did that come about? Oh, the alcohol free. So, you know, I, come I I definitely have alcoholism in my family so it's always been something I've been more watchful of and aware of I also am in the chefing world which right wrong or indifferent tends to have a little bit of chaos it's a very intense you know not unlike other professions but just that's my experience there's it's an intense profession where you work late hours you're you know slogging it out on the hotline of a restaurant and then you get out at midnight or two o'clock in the morning and you go out and party because it's the only time you're available and like it's like a whole lifestyle that goes along with that um i never i never really i kind of dabbled in that a tiny bit when i was in restaurants but i never really got super into it i was always again i've always been kind of conscious of my alcohol intake and i started something funny started to happen it didn't happen until you know a couple of years ago maybe a year before this I started having a lot of anxiety after I would drink. So I would, mm. you know, go out to a nice dinner, have a couple glasses of wine, come home, wake up at two o'clock in the morning, heart pounding, can't sleep, complete like insomnia. I was lucky if I got three hours of sleep a night, then I wouldn't go back to sleep. Well, I just, you know, from a physiological standpoint, that's pretty normal, right? Because alcohol, while we think that it, I mean, it is a, it is a CNS de- depressant, but it also really really messes with our sleep cycle. And so, you know, what you're describing is pretty normal, even though it didn't feel it. <laughs> right. Well, it, it had never happened to me before. Like it was new. Okay. It wasn't like I'd woken up. If I, that had started with the first time I had alcohol, I wouldn't have drank at all. You know, it wouldn't have right. been a thing because I'd always been, I'd always slept well. So that was really new for me. I had also come off of my antidepressants. So mm. I was really which took me like three years to come off of them. So I was just super sensitive, I think, to everything. And I think coming off of the antidepressants and then going, okay, having then starting to kind of lean on alcohol a little more because everything just felt much more intense. You know, I've always been a really cerebral person. I've always been a really considering anxious person. Like I think about a lot of things. My brain is always going. The idea of like suppressing that was always like, kind of nice. Like, oh, I don't want to deal with this crap. Let me just, let me just have some <laughs> drink. Let me, you know, do whatever. Let me just, you know, watch TV or, you know, you know, it's, it's hard to be in a world of distractions and not let yourself get distracted. So, so I started leaning on alcohol a little more, not ever in a way that I felt I needed to go to rehab, but just in a way of like, hmm, I feel like I'm not feeling good. I started losing my hair. And then I was like, oh no, I'm losing my hair. This is not good. Like, so, like I'm wired out. Like I can't, something's got to give. And I had debated at that point on going back on my antidepressants. And I thought, look, it took you so long to come off of them. Last ditch effort. I've heard that alcohol is uh, anxiety, like is like gasoline and anxiety fire. Like it just makes sense. Yeah, so before I go back on my meds, let me take alcohol out as an experiment. And let's see. I had seen some, at that point too, there were Facebook ads on this alcohol-free one year, no beer is the, the site. 
and they were from the UK. They seemed really cool. I liked that they were from not the US. Like to me, that was kind of fun of an idea. I was like, oh, I get to listen to people, you know, who are British all day. This is kind of cool. Yeah, we we like that accent, don't we? Oh man, it's so fun. It's so novel to us, and 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 but we say everything wrong to them. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I I understand. Yeah. So I said, okay, let me try. It was like they had a twenty-eight day challenge. I'm like, let me try this for twenty-eight days. Let's see how this goes. And by like a week or two in, I was like, okay, I'm definitely going for ninety days because they have a twenty. At least at that point, they had a twenty-eight day program, a ninety day program, and a three hundred sixty-five day program. And I said, it like you know, I realized when I stopped drinking, I was like, oh wow, I'm really a lot leaning on this a lot more than I kind of thought I was, and I've I've established some patterns that I'm not happy with. Um, I really like the idea of having that community because it made it it made it that like for people who didn't necessarily have a clinical addiction, a place to go to say, I don't really like my relationship with alcohol. How do I change it without all the shame around mm-hmm. like you're an alcoholic, so you have to go to rehab and your life is, you know, whatever. I, I just I really like they destigmatized it. They said this is totally normal. You know, it's is it really normal to drink? Start questioning just kind of the the belief systems that have been established. Well, I think that's so important to to look at the beliefs because, you know, when you look at at anything that comes out of Hollywood or any of the media, right? What do people do when when they have stress? They smoke and they drink. Two things that are really bad for you. And we we know for a fact that these things are bad for us. Now, there may be some research that says, you know, you can have a glass of red wine and that might that might decrease your blood pressure and that might prolong your life. But at the same time, you know, one glass, nobody, very few people just has one glass. Yeah, that was never me. You know, and then there's, yeah, no, I mean, it's not me either. I still can't only have, I mean, when I decide to drink, I drink, you know, two, three glasses of wine. That's just what it is, right? But I I mean, I don't drink nearly as much as I used to. And I feel better. You know, I find that if I do drink, I wake up, I feel like shit. So, uh, you know, it's easy. It's, it's, It's a lot easier to make that decision now because I've connected the feeling shitty to the drinking. But it took me a long time to get to that point. And so, so when, when it comes to, you know, just, just even starting to look at anything like this, we have to examine all of the beliefs. And so we have to come at it with like this new view and say, okay, what, what is the issue here? And, and, and where, where is my social anxiety really coming from? And, and do I, do I have a sense of not feeling good about myself? to the point that I can't be sober in a group of people. Right. 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 And right. yeah. Right. And it was, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. My, my husband doesn't, is not a drinker at all. Like when I met him, he never drank. So, you know, he was always like, you know, he doesn't understand that whole thing. So it was kind of easier too, because I could come home and just say, oh, I'm going to make this decision. And he would also follow and, because if he had drank a lot, I don't know if I would have been able to continue. I don't know. It would have been a lot harder, I think, that way. Sure. But what I found so interesting was in this group, the fact that so many people are questioning, even if they have, because of course, you know, everybody says, well, you weren't drinking that much. Why would you stop? And it's like, well, you don't see my daily alcohol consumption, but also it's not feeling, it's something just feeling off to me. And where popped into my mind just on my own was like, you know, as a little kid, I remember like, I I didn't the first drink I ever had is like let's say as a teenager I remember mm-hmm. not liking so where along yeah. the way did I train myself to like it if I if I had to work that hard I mean basically it took me until I was 
at the culinary, taking my wines class, tasting literally 30 different types of wine a day. And when I started that class, I hated wine. But I said to myself, you have to like wine. You're a chef. If you're going to be a good chef, you have to like wine. So you better buck up and get over it and really start Don't to you enjoy think there are chefs, though? Do, do you think there are chefs, though, that don't like wine? I haven't met any. I, I haven't. I mean, there probably are. And if you think about it, there probably are. I don't know any, though. All right. the chefs that I know, it goes along with if you're, that's another belief system of if you're really good with food, you should be good at pairing with food because they go together. They're, they're connected in the fine dining scene. So if you're going to be as an established chef in a fine dining scene, you need to have a very broad knowledge of both, ideally. And so if you don't like wine, it, it, there's a feeling of like inadequacy there. I see. So I, I mean, I don't know. So we went to this restaurant in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, at the time, it was number three in the world. You were there. It's called Noma, N-O-M-A. And they, you know, they had a wine and beer pairing with the with the meal. And it was a really weird. It was a weird experience. That it was that the food was bizarre, and it was a fun experience. But it was strange. There was strange food. I mean, the dessert was chocolate covered moss. It was really bizarre. So we can say that, and it's okay. Yes, yes. it was an experiential thing, but. Not only did they have a wine and beer pairing, they had a juice pairing. And so, so the, the challenge is, is that, is it really that you have to know wine or is it because of the wine industry that, that it puts food with wine? Can, because can we, can we look at pairing other things? I mean, I, I a hundred percent, you know, so now I'm a year out, right. Almost yeah. it'll be a year and like a couple, like a week and a half. Okay. Woo-hoo. So yeah. Congratulations. So thanks. It's interesting for me now because like, like, I think I would love to see, and I feel like it's happening, you know, more and more this underground movement, which is becoming more known of the the sobriety movement, the not drinking movement, like mm-hmm. the generation after me, they don't even drink, like their, their numbers for drinking are so far less, like every generation it's more. So it's interesting that even the younger people coming along are going, well, this is kind of stupid. Why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. Who wants to poison themselves because of some culture from before? Right. Well, and, and it's just, it's a cultural accepted belief system. So if you step, exactly. so there were a couple of things that were really intriguing to me. One was, I like the idea of putting it as an experiment because there was no stigma attached to it and it kind of was open-ended. And I liked also the, like the idea of doing something outside of the cultural norm. Mm-hmm. So I've always been that person kind of anyway, where like, I don't, I kind of look at everything and then form my own opinion, but I try to be really observant of what's going on. And like, I liked the idea of like starting a, being in a movement that was a little bit underground, but starting to do something different. Like I really like kind of being a, rebel a little bit that way like oh let me try something different that and see where the the, where it leads and the benefits of it like you you hear so many different alcohol if you listen to any alcohol free it's most of the interviews are pretty much the same it's like holy crap i didn't realize how much it was taking out of my life it was costing me financially it was costing me energetically it was costing me in my job in my Mm -hmm. you know relationships spiritual life yeah and, and like and it doesn't have to be big big ways like oh you know I'm in the, you know, I'm penniless and I'm out on the street, which is kind of what everybody thinks. Like, you know, like the hobo. Yeah. It can be all those little things are still like energetic currency that you're spending and you're not getting anything from. So 
where I am a very spiritual person too. And I'm like, you know, let me see what this is like. A year later, I, I can handle my thoughts so much better. My hair has grown back, which is really nice. Yeah. My anxiety is, you know, is really significantly reduced to a much more manageable level. And I now have dealt with, you know, living like living through a pandemic and not drinking and starting a new business during a pandemic and not drinking allowed me to work through all of these emotions that had I had a substance at hand, I would have just suppressed. Right. It would have had to come out somewhere. Right. So I just feel a, a lot more, a lot stronger in well, myself think, as a person. I think, I think we, there's a, there's an opportunity here to talk about emotions just for a minute. And, and the fact that, you know, what, what, what are emotions for? Right. I mean, humans don't come with a user manual. And, you know, we're taught from a very young age to be factory workers by the way we're, the way we're in school, right? So we start to come into ourselves a little bit, start to understand that we have choices or that we can create our lives the way we want. And how do we, how do we look at these emotions? I mean, you know, we're almost conditioned from the very beginning because of, because of the way the media is, you know, like the stress is portrayed in the media that when you feel a certain way, the thing to do is to reach for a substance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not to go out for a walk and control yourself or, or to get, a, you know, some personal mastery. It's to, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, you like, I watched this, I can't remember the name of the series, but it was a series on Netflix about robots that it was from Russia, robots that look like humans. And I'm telling you, man, these, these human people, Every time something happened, they were pouring a drink, pouring a drink and smoking. And I'm just thinking, you know, these people are going to get esophageal cancer. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's just like always pouring a drink. And you, if, and you go back to the 50s and you look at you look at commercials from the 50s. It's like, let's just push down our emotions. And I, what I don't understand is why is it that we're not doing things to show people how to, you know, interpret the emotions that we have? And that's right. Well, and then even, you know, okay, an emotion comes up, it feels uncomfortable, you know, feeling again, it's like being mindful, being present and being aware of it doesn't have to overtake me. I can then, what am I going to do with this emotion? Right. Am I going to look at it a little deeper? Where is it coming from? And like the minute that it comes up and even for me now going, you know, having anxiety since I was really, really young, not knowing what it was. And then living my life for so long, feeling like I was like climbing uphill. If really, if someone had just sat down and said, okay, well, where is this emotion coming from? Let's, it's okay to feel it. First of all, being okay feeling it. Like, right. it's okay. I'm, I'm angry. I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I'm whatever. It's all okay. Now what? It like lessens it immediately instead sure. of just something's coming up. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm going to push it back. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then when you're done doing whatever you're doing, it's still there. Mm -hmm. You know, like for me, when I was drinking, it would push it away for a little while and then it would come back at two in the morning and I wouldn't get any sleep because it was going to come out somewhere. And like, so yeah, I wish there was, I I'm hoping kind of, you know, my kind of hope for the alcohol free movement is that as people are more aware, as, as people start to explore this more that, you know how smoking first everyone did and then they just didn't. And now it's yeah. like such an abnormal thing when you see people smoking, it's like almost like strange. I'm kind of, hopeful that that is eventually where alcohol will be, where it'll be it a little may. less. I mean, you have to go back to present. prohibition. Remember, you know, we know that alcohol is a poison. We know it's a toxin to the body. We also know that it makes us feel euphoria, 
or what we think is euphoria. It makes us feel, you know, gives us an altered state. And that altered state gives us a bit of a respite from, from our lives or from our emotions. What I like about emotions, the one thing that Michael Singer says in uh, The Untethered Soul, is he talks about keeping your heart open and letting things pass through you. And he doesn't, ex- he doesn't really tell you how. He just says, do it. And so I, I, think, I think our job in, this, in these situations is to be the observer, kind of step away from the actual thing, but observe the thing and let the thing pass through, whatever it is, and then we can decide what to do with it. And that's very easily said and much more difficultly done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You well, know, it's hard to do that. If you have shame and judgment around, you're judging it or, you know, then yeah. you add on all those layers and it's like, so yeah, letting it pass through and not even giving it, just letting it go. Right. Because things at the end of the day, things are just things. They're, they're neutral. Things are neutral. And it's when we start to apply meaning to those things that we start to suffer. That's the key, but it just, it's so easy to understand like up here and so hard to like get down here and to put into practice. But it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a process as it were. Yeah. You know, it's a process and it's like a sticky trap. If you keep, you know, like, you know, if you keep ruminating on something, it just gets, it gets. Oh more. yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, that's one thing I think that, that for me, when, when I, when I choose not to drink, it's a little bit easier to control my thoughts. To, to just redirect and you know. I find I'm just not as easily triggered. Like I see everything a lot more neutrally versus mm-hmm. react like emotionally, like I, like going to family events, which I'm sure everyone can, a lot of people can relate to this unless you have a race. That's awesome. Yeah. But going to family, you know, events and gatherings it, for me was always very anxiety producing. Who's going to say this and what it's connected to that. And, mm-hmm. and so I would, you know, the alcohol being present in those situations for me, I remember I would always leave and be super pissed off about something. And now I go and I'm just kind of observing and I'm kind of just detached, but, you know, enjoying people and just seeing how things work. And I'm not angry. I leave and I'm in a good mood. You know, I don't didn't say anything stupid. I didn't do something stupid, you know, I didn't do anything stupid. And and it just is a much different, much nicer interaction. Like family, I also can do things like start to decide, okay, do I want to go for if I have a family event, do I want to be there for four hours? Do I want to be there for eight hours? My best amount of time with family, you know, in general is like three to four hours. That's a good time. Yeah. Go hang out. I, no, I love that because yeah, you, you, you can, you could make the choice and you know, you don't, yeah, you don't have to worry. And, and then to not, you know, to not drink during that time, it's, it's, it's so, I think, I just think it's, it's, it, the, the best thing for us is to really kind of be aware. I mean, because once, once you, once you step back from it, you can start to become more aware of your triggers. Yeah. And then, and then just kind of things can kind of flow. So, so what, when you started your new business, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you're helping, what are you at? You're, you're, you're doing the thing with the kids, but you're also cooking for people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever get wine suggestions or questions from, from your pe- the people sometimes you're working I, for now? Sometimes I do. If they're like, oh, I want to pair something with this, would you, you know, what would you suggest? And then I, I go into my giant book or I go into like, you know, I go online and I Google and I kind of come up with some kind of an idea. I haven't had to. So the one thing that I haven't had to do a lot is eat out without alcohol. That's the one thing I, I think I still have a tiny bit of a question around going to a tasting menu, for example, and not having a glass of wine is a little strange. Hmm. Well, we did that, right? We went to Blanca. So Blanca is a restaurant in uh, Brooklyn 
and it's behind what's the name of the pizza place? Roberta's. Roberta's Pizza. Yeah. So it's a two Michelin star restaurant. And we went there, Cassandra and her husband, and it was a birthday celebration, I think, or something. I can't remember. It was my birthday. It was my birthday. Yours. Yes. Yeah. Last year. And we said, okay, we're not going to drink. And none of us had any wine, but they they brought us this really, really good alcohol-free wine. That was delicious. Yeah. That was delicious. And so I think that, you know, I think that there's that, that option more and more as this, as this alcohol-free world is, is coming to be, you know, we're seeing more mixology with alcohol-free substances. You know, if we, we have some alcohol-free gin now in the house that we've, that we've made so some. That is so good, too. That's I know. really good. It's yeah. really good. We've made you know, some. Fun things like the sangria I made was really good with the, the alcohol-free wine. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So what... If somebody wanted to work with you, like say to become a health coach, how would they, how would they go about that? What, what would that look like? Like a foodie coach, like to teach yeah. them how to cook or whatever, or a health coach. I mean, I can do, I can do either. Uh, generally, I usually say, okay, well, let's start with, I start with the basics and I say, okay, well, what do you, what would you, what would be easiest for you? And it's usually a combination of like, I just want things that are quick to make and I want to get more confident in my skill set so that I can throw things together. And then they, you know, getting some recipes from me that are go-tos that I use quite often. So they have some fail safes. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of start kind of breaking it down. You know, for a lot of people, if they weren't, you know, it's interesting. I had a grandmother that was an amazing cook, you know, so in my mind, someone showed me, someone showed me something, but I've met several people who they have no food memories cooking at all because their mother didn't cook and their grandmother didn't cook. And not that it always has to be that stereotypical setup, but for them or their fathers didn't cook, right? So, but that imprinted on them this idea that they couldn't because no one showed them. And it became very intimidating instead of just opening up to, okay, well, let me teach myself. It's kind of like me with makeup. No one ever taught. My mom was not, was a very anti-makeup. And so I grew up forever kind of winging it with the makeup scene. And I still do. And even to this day, I go, well, no one ever taught me. Well, obviously, that's an excuse. I could learn at any time. But it's not something yeah, that's comfortable for me. There's this thing called YouTube. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. <laughs> there's like guys on YouTube who, are, who have amazing makeup skills. I know. I know. But it's, it's interesting because that's my link to understanding kind of how they feel because that, sure. I, have, I have something like that too. You know, I think we all kind of do. So it's kind of like I step in to, to affirm that Let's start with the basics. Let's start with some easy things and get their confidence level up so that when I leave, they just go ahead and, and make, yeah. you know, are able to, because they do still want to maybe feed their families a couple of days a week. I come in and I, I solve part of the problem or the part of the dilemma, right? So I solve mm-hmm. the immediacy of needing some food in the house, but it's still really nice that feeling of feeding your family. If you're right. still looking to do that, which a lot of people are, I kind of come in and, and nurture that a little bit. Okay, well, let's, Let's talk about how to use a knife. Let's talk about how to work with your oven because every oven is different. And here's some really easy and quick ways that you can make a delicious meal in a short amount of time. And so we kind of break it down that way. And that's kind of what my focus has been now. Do you work with people over Zoom? Have you ever like tried to teach cooking or knife skills or anything like that? I have, I've, I've done, I did a couple of cooking classes over Zoom. I haven't done a Zoom. It's so nice to do the one-on-ones when I can. I would, I'm totally open to Zoom, but because it's kind of, it's so much easier to show someone how to cut, you know, it, when I'm standing right next to them and I can correct their body posture. And not yeah. that I couldn't, I certainly would be open to it, but the interaction one-on-one is a little bit nicer. That's for, that. for sure. Yeah. Well, but 
that that kind of limits you. So, but you you would be open. So, somebody who's watching this podcast right now decides that they want, you know, some some individual training. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, how how does someone get a hold of you? So, <laughs> I'm on Facebook okay. under Cassandra Katoya and as Empowered Foodie as well. I have a group for that. Probably one of the easiest ways to get a hold of me. I also have empoweredfoodie.com, which they can right. request in for. Cool. Empowered yeah. Foodie, empoweredfoodie.com. Was there anything mm-hmm. else you were hoping to share? No, just that, you know, I hope, I'm sure everybody had to get more acquainted with their kitchens throughout the, the pandemic. And I hope, yeah. I hope, I have heard several people say that they're, they are enjoying, they are, they have been enjoying cooking and they're making sourdough and they never did before. And so I'm kind of hoping it has fostered people to kind of think more about stepping more into their kitchens and, and cooking. And their gardens, maybe. And their gardens. A lot of gardens during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Veggie gardens are amazing. Yeah. That's great. Well, Chef Cassandra, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. I really appreciate you. Thank and, you for having uh, me. If, if you want to, you can get the cookbook on Amazon and we'll hook that up in the show notes. And we'll also hook up how you can get a hold of Chef Cassandra if you want to work with her one-on-one. All Great. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, if you have questions about the topics covered in this or any other podcast, I invite you to open a conversation with me via email at info at menopausemovement.com or on Facebook Messenger through my Facebook page at Dr. Michelle Gordon. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-O-R-D-O-N. I also want to invite you to join in our next beta group. Here at the Menopause Movement, we are always trying out new methods of teaching and the best ways to get on top of your menopause symptoms. We regularly run beta test groups where we create a learning experience valued at $2,000, but at no cost to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. To get notified of our next beta group, simply sign up at beta.menopausemovement.com. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. I appreciate you.